Folks, those are the very first words of the very first gospel ever written. I mean, you were right there at the origin story of the life of Jesus. And really, what I wanted you to hear most was the words with which Jesus inaugurates his ministry in the world. There was that account of baptism, rich and and beautiful. In fact, in two weeks, we're celebrating baptisms here. You don't want to miss that Sunday. Uh, There's the account of that wilderness retreat, which felt like it was going to get hijacked in in a time of temptation, but but Jesus rallies himself back. But his inaugural address, the beginning of the good news, that's our focus for today. Before we, before we dig in, I just want to invite you into a moment of prayer with me. God, would, would the words that you have for us, God, would they root themselves deeply in our lives? Would you take what is consistent with your will and purpose for us and allow it to grow and flourish and And God, anything that would distract us from from attending to you and what you would have for us today, uh, just pray that you would prevent that from from having any foothold in our lives. God, be with us in these moments that we share with you. In Christ's name, amen. I want to start with a question this morning. It's not my question. It actually is one that appeared in a New York Times column a number of years ago. And the question postulated two hypothetical people and asked the question, who would you rather be? So here's the first, Richard. (laughs) I didn't make that up. That's actually, yeah. Richard is an ambitious 36-year-old white commodities trader. He lives in Rosedale. He's healthy. He's fantastically handsome. I told you I didn't make this up. He, he, he lives in a house with a pool. He's dated a series of gorgeous women. He married the most beautiful one. His job is stressful, but he spends all his Christmases in Tahiti. He's free to indulge in all his passions, spelunking, marathon running, collecting vintage automobiles. So that's the first. Here's the second. Gabriella. Gabriella is a 64-year-old Latin American woman. She lives in the opposite of Rosedale. She's overweight. By society's standards, she would not be deemed to be overly attractive. She's on regular dialysis, but but she's never let that impede her from a great social life or, or from the highlight of her week, which is babysitting her grandchildren. She's a retired school assistant. She's very close to her 67-year-old husband, and she is much loved in her church where she leads music ministries and the semi-annual food drive. Lorna believes in tithing, and she has, over the past few weeks, organized a drive to raise $10,000 for settling some of the many, many displaced refugees in our world. The question that gets asked in the article is simply this, which of these two people do you think our society would put forward as an example of the good life? Who's living the good life? Which one, if you had to pick a spokesperson for your product and you're introducing your product to the world, would you want holding up your product saying, here it is. You want a life like mine? Try this. Would it be Richard? Would it be Gabriella? It turns out there's all kinds of research on this. It turns out, as we've studied, that that gender has no impact on happiness, that climate and weather have no impact on happiness. There are happy people in Iceland. There are happy people in Barbados. Uh, 
It turns out that there are happy people even in Brampton. Beautiful people are not happier than folks that society judges to be less attractive. Younger people are not happier or less happy than older people. In fact, it turns out that lasting happiness is linked to a whole bunch of factors that surprised folks. Volunteering, donating, giving blood, serving others, being generous with your finances, and this. People with a vibrant faith in God tend to be that much more joyful than those who are just trying to eke out a life without God. A man named Stephen Post, a doctor, he heads a, a research institute that has funded many of these high-level projects, researching particularly in the subject of human compassion. They've done studies now at, at 44 different universities. And I want you to listen to what he writes. Post says the remarkable bottom line on the science of love is that giving, giving protects overall health twice as much as aspirin protects against heart disease. He goes on to say, the benefits of compassion, listen to this, the benefits of compassion to your physical health and welfare are so strong that were compassion not free, Pharmaceutical companies would herald it as the next great discovery, a stupendous new drug that they could call Give Back and market it instead of Prozac, run ads on TV about the power of compassion to enhance your life. Turns out in that New York Times scenario of two people, Gabriella is more than likely to live longer, to be happier, to enjoy deeper and better friendships, to experience a greater sense of purpose, to nurse fewer regrets in her life, but that's not what matters the most. The, the question that really I want to think with you this morning about is this. Which one of those two, Richard or Gabriella, would you say is living a life under, under the lordship and after the heart of Jesus himself? With that background, let me take you again to the very first words of Jesus recorded in the very earliest gospel, in the gospel of Mark. If you, if you want, you can open up your Bibles or we'll have some verses on the screen. This is the announcement of an astonishing new development in the history of the world, in the history of salvation. Mark 1.15, Jesus' inaugural address to the world, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And it's followed immediately by a call to action, repent and believe the good news, the gospel. The word gospel, if you don't know, just means good news. Repent and believe this. How is it, I wonder, that the church so often, particularly in the past century, has missed the central message of Jesus, that the kingdom of God has come near. I mean, just five verses earlier, remember the scripture that Deji read for us? Just five verses earlier, you get this dramatic visual example of the heavens themselves opening wide up. Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the waters, there's a voice from heaven, says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He saw, it says in Mark 1 verse 10, the heavens torn open. It's happening literally. 
It's happening spiritually. The kingdom of God is now accessible. It's, it's torn open. And his son, Jesus, is the one making all of this possible. And then comes that word, repent, which really is such a good word. I don't know, at one point in history, we we decided it ought to go on some dusty shelf with a lot of other religious words that are controversial. Repent just means it's not too late. Turn around, start again. It was a call to, to change our minds and change our habits and change our lives and and exchange the agenda that we have in life for the agenda he has for us. It's a call to reorder our lives in the face of this dramatic good news, this gospel that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. And if that language, kingdom of God, sounds a, a, a little bit suspicious to you or unfamiliar, kingdom of God just means that place where the reign and the will and the joy and the purpose of God is in full effect. That's what the kingdom is. Eugene Peterson, a, a great theologian, translator of the Bible, he, he rendered Mark 1.15 in this way. He said, this is uh, in the message translation, he said, time's up. Time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. So that's key. Uh, The call of Jesus, the call of the gospel, is not just to believe something. It's to change our lives. Jesus seemed to be absolutely obsessed with this notion that, that the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign and purpose of God in our lives, has incessantly embedded in it a set of of characteristics, that there there are things that should be seen and felt. And and in drawing that out, he uses this language, the kingdom of God, I think more than anything else in trying to illustrate what God is up to in the world. It's the subject of most of his parables. It's a metaphor that weaves itself through his teaching. He declared that the main purpose for which he is here the main mission of his incarnation and death on the cross was to find a way for men and women to gain access to this beautiful reality, the, the kingdom of God. And then before he left, before he left, he commissions his disciples to do what? To take the kingdom message, to take it to the four corners of the earth, to make more disciples and to establish these little kingdom outposts in the world. He, he called them churches, outposts of the kingdom. And the central message that he gave to them to share, the central message for the church, was to proclaim and celebrate and then work towards building this emerging reality so that more people would enjoy the reign and purpose and joy of the kingdom of God in their lives. The primary purpose of your life, my life, as a follower in Jesus, is to join him on the mission. That's why we're created. That's where real significance and joy is to be found. Today, I looked it up this morning just to double check. Today, there's somewhere around 2.6 billion people in the world who identify themselves as Christians, as Christ followers. And that that number is growing rapidly. It's projected to be 3.3 billion within the next 15 years or so. It would be virtually, I think, impossible to overestimate the impact that followers of Jesus have had on the world. And I know it's not politically correct to say that anymore. I know it's kind of popular and in vogue to criticize the church for all the evil done in the name of God. And listen, you can put me at the front of the line in acknowledging there have been some heinous acts done in the name of God on all sides, in all conflicts. 
but any really objective sort of evaluation of the history of our world can't help but conclude that the, that the positives have vastly outweighed the negatives. Moment by moment, century by century, the kingdom of God breaking its way into our world. Education, healthcare, human rights, compassion. These things are the attributes of the kingdom. But then, then there comes a moment when maybe we want to step back and ask the question of whether the church in the 21st century is quite as tuned in to this idea, this mission of the building of the kingdom of God, as they seem to have been in the early centuries of the church. We live in a unique time in history. You know this, I know this. Every dimension of human endeavor has been advanced. Communications, travel, education, medical solutions, agriculture, nutrition, child development, economics, maybe government, maybe. And Christians, I mean, Christ's followers themselves, we have more access to to scripture, to biblical language, in hundreds of different languages, in all kinds of different mediums than any generation ever has before. Today, it is more possible than ever before to understand the heart and purposes of God. So why is it? Why is it that the church seems to have stalled in the Northern Hemisphere and particularly in the Western world? Why is it we're stalled in the global north? Could it be? Could it be that at some level we have misunderstood the very core tenets of our faith, of the gospel itself? You show me a church that's flourishing, and, and I think you'll be able to tease out why it's flourishing, and it's because they have understood the whole gospel. Show me churches that are struggling, and I think it's probably because at some point they decided they were going to live with something less. And here's what sometimes happens. We misunderstood the gospel either as being just good humanitarian aid or just motivating people into some sort of transactional arrangement with God where God cleans up my dirty little sins and gives me a ticket to heaven and then I can get on with my life. That's not the whole gospel. That is, to, to quote an expression that, that uh, Richard Stearns, director of World Vision for 20, 25 years, he said, that's the gospel with a hole in it. And it's a gaping hole. And, and through that hole often leaks the credibility of the church and the zeal and the passion of the church because we've exchanged the fullness of the gospel for something so much less. I do a deal with God. I buy the equivalent of some fire insurance policy. I put it in my drawer, and then I can go back to the party. Now, it might not be a bad idea to go to church now and then, C&E, Christian and Easter, you know, and, and dip my feet in some spiritual waters, and it wouldn't hurt to pray from time to time, especially when there's a crisis. But basically, my salvation was secured long ago when I made that choice, and, and I'm good. That's what one writer, Dallas Willard, referred to as the gospel of sin management. We have a sin problem. The gospel offers a quick and easy solution. You take the antidote, and you get back to living your life. It's the dumbing down of the gospel. And, and, and just to be clear, I mean, that is a beautiful part of the gospel. 
that, that there is a way of making sure that sin doesn't have the final word in your life or mine. There's a way of restoring relationship to God, which really is all sin really means. It disrupts that relationship. But that's not the whole gospel. Scott McKnight, great writer in this generation, if you've not discovered him before, talks about this as the difference between a disciple and a decider. And he says that most evangelism today focuses on getting someone to make a decision. But the apostles, early church, were obsessed with making disciples. Jesus called us to be disciples and disciple makers, not just deciders and decision makers. Deciders may believe some of the right things. Disciples are trying to do the right things because of what they believe. You feel the difference? Disciples are dedicated to learning their master's truths so they can imitate their master's life. We spent all of the month of October looking at, at the attributes of, of a full life in Christ. And, and we did so with the undergirding assumption that if you want the life of Jesus, that life of, of, of abundance, the life that is truly life, Scripture calls it, if you want the life of Jesus, you need to learn from the lifestyle of Jesus. Jesus had some harsh things to say about deciders. Listen to a few of them. This is from Luke 6. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? Boy, that stings, doesn't it? Or how about this from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven. In fact, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. And I think there must have been tears in his eyes. Because that also meant you never really knew me. Away from me now, you evildoers. Deciders are kind of like those in, in one of the parables that Jesus told, the parable of the sower. And he described them as the people who, this is Mark 4, who hear the word, who hear the voice of God, the teachings of God, but somehow the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for lots of other things, they come in and they choke it out, making it unfruitful. Maybe to put it in language that, that some of you who've been part of the church for, for more than a couple of years are familiar with, deciders are those who, who can look back at a moment when somebody said, here's the sinner's prayer, pray it with me. Just say, I do or I will to the invitation. And then they're done with it. But merely saying the sinner's prayer, that doesn't lead to any kind of life-changing relationship any more than standing next to your spouse on a platform and saying, I do, leads to a beautiful, fulfilling, lifelong marriage. A marriage is, is built on thousands upon thousands of, of daily expressions of love and sacrifice that we make for the ones that we live our lives with. And strong marriages involve reordering our lives around the priorities of each other. You don't just say, I do, and live the rest of your life as if I don't. Put yourself first, unfaithful whenever we want. Spend all your time on your own whims. 
satisfying your deepest desires and ignoring everything else. The same way, you can't just say, I do to Jesus and, and then live the rest of your life as if you don't. There are dramatic, there are, there are serious implications to standing on a platform in front of someone and saying, I do. There are dramatic and serious implications to saying, I do, to the Lord of the universe. It's not just enough to be a decider. Jesus wants disciples. And I think sometimes in our zeal to get people to the moment of decision, which is important, but only ever a starting point. That's just when you get off the blocks. That's not the race. That's just the shotgun. In our zeal to take them to that moment of decision, we have confined the gospel only to that moment of decision. Or there, on the other side, maybe we just don't even go to the track at all. So no need for any decision. In fact, we can do the things that Jesus did without Jesus involved in it at all. And then it just becomes a humanitarian effort. The, the sin management approach to the gospel, the dumbing down of the gospel, also has a way of really kind of blunting the sharp edge of the Great Commission. Remember, this is the marching orders for the church. You know, the go into the world, and as you go, make disciples, baptize in them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You know the Great Commission. But somehow it gets reduced. If it's all about making deciders and not disciples, more about selling fire insurance policies, then this is what it begins to sound like. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We like that part. Teach them to obey that everything I've commanded you is optional. And surely that fire insurance policy that you sign will remain in force forever to the very end of the age. That doesn't transform anything. Not the church, not the world, not individual lives. You don't have to bother about that making disciples, teaching them to live and obey everything that I have lived and obeyed with you. You can accept the salvation of Jesus and and totally ignore who it is you just accepted that gift from. If this really is the Lord of the universe in flesh, then what did you just say yes to? And who did you say it to? And how can you possibly say Savior without saying Lord in the same breath? If it doesn't make any demands on your life or lifestyle or behavior, lets you do whatever you want with your time or your money, and things like feeding the hungry, clothing those who, uh, who don't have anything, keeping shelter over those who are living rough in the world, taking a stand against injustice, all of this in the name of Jesus and for the sake of Jesus, all of that becomes optional. The only problem with it is that's absolutely not the gospel that Jesus preached, and it lacks the power to change the world. What happened to the vision of Jesus, a vision for the inbreaking kingdom of God. What happened to the great mission that he gave to transform human society, to draw them back into relationship with their creator? Well, here we are. This is the, normally the point in every sermon where we get to the turn and, and think, boy, that was really, that was a depressing message. So, so let's, let's get to the turn. Um, there are signs of life and vitality in the church. Yeah. If you visit the global south, or the developing world, you'll see a church on fire because they get this. And you'll see little outposts of the kingdom uh, throughout North America and Europe where it's on fire. And if you've ever had the sense that there's something catching fire, maybe even here, 
I think it's because there are people who are fully in alignment to the wholeness of the gospel. And praise God that I think we see the signs of it here. It's what gives me joy and exhilaration, getting up in the morning, coming to be a part of it. When you get the gospel right, you don't worry about stuff like church growth strategies because that's not the primary endeavor. When you get it right, that stuff just happens or doesn't even need to happen because that's not the mission. And to be sure, I mean, becoming a disciple of Jesus begins with a decision, but it must be followed by a radically new way of living under the authority of God, God's truth, God's values. In other words, the good news, the gospel, is not just that I get to enter into the kingdom of God or heaven or whatever language we want when I die. The good news is also that Christ's death and resurrection opens up the kingdom to us now and invites us to be involved in making it sure it's breaking into the world. If it's only ever the first part, then all that we really want to pray for is Jesus come back soon because this world's a wreck and a disaster and I just want to get out of here. When do you ever see Jesus interacting with the world that way? Let me give you a couple of great verses. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Here's the good news of the gospel. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's the first part of it. Isn't that beautiful? But notice how it's still wrapped up in kingdom language. This is not just a transaction that you and I make. This is, this is the corporate work of God in the world. And if the gospel is more than a fire insurance policy or a sin management strategy, well, what is it? Well, here's how Richard Stearns described it. He said that the story of Scripture is the story of a father's love for his children. The story of a father faithfully reaching out to the children who'd rejected him. The story of a loving God who never gives up. Now you tell me, are there people in the world that need to hear that they've never been given up on? Because they feel like their family tossed them aside long ago. That the system had no place for them. That society has rejected them. That their spouse has given up on them. Isn't it good news to hear that God has never given up on them? In fact, the entire story of Scripture is the story of God not giving up. The overture that that is made by God from the very moment when human beings first decided, nah, we'll just turn our back. Um, From that very first moment, back in the Garden of Eden, the story is God inviting, calling back. Abraham called out among all the nations to become a people. And what would these people look like? This would be a kingdom people. You'll be our God, we'll be your people, and we'll dwell together in this. This would be a sign of what the kingdom of God could look like. Moses rescues people from captivity in Egypt, calls them out of one kingdom, a worldly kingdom, an earthly kingdom, to become something different. A people would live out the values of the kingdom of God. What would that look like? Remember Mount Sinai, Moses comes down, Charlton Heston, big rocks in hand, Ten Commandments, there it is. But what are the Ten Commandments really but an invitation to live beautifully together according to God's design? 
Israel spends some time wandering around in the desert. Desert times are often in Scripture those times when you get right with God. And he eventually leads them to a place where God's new kingdom can begin to thrive and flourish. The promised land. I bet it was a promised land. And then first you have the tabernacle and then the temple established as these symbolic reminders that God is not way out there somewhere. He's right there in the middle of you. And then they established priests and there were systems of sacrifice. I think just to remind people that this can be costly. That getting right with God can be costly. But in the end, it's not a cost that you and I bear. Kings are appointed with the idea that they could, they could lead people with righteousness and justice and uphold what God stands for. This, this could be a sign of what a, a kingdom could look like modeled after the heart of God. Prophets get sent again and again through history to remind people when they've gone astray and off track to, to talk about the consequences of doing it without God. And every one of those gestures seems to be an attempt by God to give his people another chance and a third and a fourth to live in harmony with God and with each other. Every overture seems to be an invitation back to the kingdom. And I don't know why God chooses to do this over and over and over again. I'm surely he must have known at some level that, that we have this history of disappointing him. As a parent, you know, and, and I know that sometimes we have to allow our kids to make the choice that, that they really ought not to, wait to make and live with the consequences of the choice and hope that they learn the hard way, the lessons that we wish they would learn by principle but often get learned only through practice. The hundreds of years of, of these attempts by God to, to invite his children back and then finally comes the decisive moment. God's going to undertake a rescue mission. This one is so critical to the history of the world that he's going to lead it himself. He's the one who's going to do it. And so he comes in human form as Jesus, and it's going to be costly. Listen to just how costly. Romans 5, 6, and 7. You see, at just the right time, well, we were still powerless. Christ died for us, those of us who are ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But Jesus Christ establishes his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That invitation to come back into the kingdom, something that prophets had only ever dreamed of, was now the emerging reality. Not possible fully until God made it possible. What is it that, that happened this time that made it succeed? Well, three things. First, whatever that barrier was, that, that wall that somehow kept us apart from God, and incidentally, it seems to be the same thing that keeps us apart from each other. Whatever it was, it gets taken down. That's the miracle of the cross. That's the power of the death of Christ. But here's the second thing that happens. I mean, Jesus didn't just come and die. Jesus lived a full life. And his teachings and his examples and his modeling of what this looks like as the kingdom of God is, is lived out in the world. That set in motion a, a series of events that, that really can and have transformed the world. That's the miracle of the life of Jesus. And then the third thing, God promised and 
and delivered on this, that, that this would no longer just be a remote experience, that the Spirit of God would surround us and indwell us and work powerfully to allow us to live the way we aspire to live. And that third point, that's no small thing. Ever since things went catastrophically wrong back in Genesis, ever since that, that, that opening moment of brokenness, we no longer had that sort of unbroken, unfettered access to God. There were times in the Old Testament where it felt like but God was completely cut off. And here's how they demonstrated it symbolically. The, the most tangible reminder of the living presence of God was the Ark of the Covenant. You know Raiders of the Lost Ark. You, you know this whole thing. And, and this was, I mean, it's not like God lived in a box. But this was the most holy, sacred thing that they ever had. And it reminded them of just how, how majestic and powerful God was. But you know what they did with it? They stuck it in the very heart of the temple behind a huge, thick-veiled curtain covered from, 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 from ceiling to floor and completely separated from the people. Cut off. And nobody ever went there. Actually, only one person ever went there, the high priest. And only after a day of knee-knocking and praying and sacrificing, they'd find the, the, the best lamb that they could find and sacrifice it. And then the high priest went in there with a rope, literally tied around his foot, because there's a really good chance you're going to die in there, and they just need to be able to pull out the body. Goes in there once a year, trembling before the presence of God, to make sacrifices, to say, God, could you do something to get rid of this wall? This, this, the consequences of sin. I want you to keep that image in your mind. And I want you to listen very closely to the account of the final moments of Jesus and, and see if you understand exactly what's happening here. The moment of Christ's death on the cross, this, this lasting, permanent, beautiful, catastrophic, and wonderful sacrifice. Luke 23. This is happening around noon, it says. When a darkness came over the whole land until about three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining, and here it is. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, ceiling to floor. And Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. You see what's happening? The curtain, I mean, this symbolic reminder of the wall that had been erected between human beings and their God, torn apart. No longer needed. Nothing now separates God from his children. The perfect sacrifice has been made. Now men and women get to live freely under the presence and authority of God to live out this thing called the kingdom of God. And in order to do that, just a few weeks later, there's this dramatic outpouring of the power and presence of God, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. Now God is not confined just to, you know, this thickly walled curtain and behind there the ark. No, now God is freely and wildly on the move among his people. And our bodies together. Never misread that your body is a temple of the Lord to be meaning just you. It's plural. Our bodies together, the body of Christ, the church becomes the temple where God is pleased to dwell. Ephesians 2. Here's the so what. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Consequently, so what? Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. 
You are fellow citizens. That's a kingdom word. Citizens with God's people. Members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the whole story of Jesus. Yes, the Messiah sent by God the Father has come. Yes, he fulfilled God's promise that his people would be a blessing to the whole world. Yes, he died so that our sins were forgiven. Yes, he was raised so that death is defeated. But it doesn't stop there. That's the only part of it. The whole gospel goes on. And now we have direct access to him in this thing called the kingdom of God, the rule of God in our lives. He's taught us how to live. He's commanded us how to obey. He's invited us to join him in in inviting and proclaiming and establishing these little outposts of the kingdom of the world, announcing the forgiveness of God. Hey, it can be beautiful again with you and God. To demonstrating God's love, to upholding God's justice, to inviting other people to join his kingdom. And then he commands us to to go and keep it moving. Keep it going in the world. Make disciples of all nations. The gospel's not just one part of that story. It's the whole story. The declaration that the king has come and with him, the kingdom is now open for business, available to everyone. Yeah, God forgive when we just cherry pick little parts of it. It's the whole gospel. God forbid when when we call Jesus Savior and don't also relish him as Lord and King. When we say yes to Jesus, yes to forgiveness, we also say yes to his Lordship and yes to his kingdom. And when we do that, it's like the little story of our lives get merged into the great unfolding story of his kingdom on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, that's all I got. Maybe we better pray. And let's invite the worship team back to the stage. Loving God, our Heavenly Father, this, this news of a, of a kingdom, it comes with a, a warm invitation, and yet it also comes with, with a responsibility. And sometimes we want to receive the one and ignore the other. And in neither one do we want to try and do it without you. Forgive us, Lord, if we've ever thought of our faith as as just a transaction that happened a long time ago. But forgive us too, Lord, when we've ever missed out on the opportunity to live our lives moment by moment, day by day, with the awareness that you are with us and that you have endowed our lives with purpose to be agents and ambassadors for the king, to be facilitators of the unfolding kingdom in the world. God, you've blessed us. You go on blessing us, but God, we don't want to hog and hoard all that you've given to us. We can spill out of our lives and out of our church so that the world too can be blessed and know that your kingdom has come and can know what it means when the heavens themselves are torn open and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. God bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.